We turn in the Word of God to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. The text for the sermon will be verses 39 through 43. 39 through 43. We'll begin reading at verse 20. Luke 23, verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again unto them, but they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold on one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors, led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, There they crucified him, and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots, and the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that sight, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. There ends our reading of God's holy word.
Beloved congregation, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know very little about the malefactor's background and history. We don't know his name. We don't have the details about his upbringing or accounts of his crimes. We don't have the tale of his arrest, his trial, or his journey to the cross. What we know about him is that he was a convicted criminal sentenced to death by the powers that be, the instruments of God's justice. We know that he was committing those crimes to such a degree that he had a hard and penitent heart that led him to commit those severe capital offenses. We know that he was hung for his crimes and thereby we know that he was under the curse of God. We know enough about the malefactor. We don't need to know all the details about who he is and what he did. What we do need to know is about the one crucified next to him, about Jesus. His journey is told to us in the accounts of Holy Scripture. His journey is familiar to us. We can follow his footsteps all the way back to Bethlehem. We can go back to even this last, in the last week of his life, his last supper and then his time of prayer and his arrest and betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, his midnight trail before the Sanhedrin, and then the rushed trials from Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate, each of them unjust, a poorly orchestrated circus in the, of, of false witnesses in the service of man's hatred of God and Jesus Christ, exposed by their own judges, because Pilate himself three times declared that he had done nothing, nothing amiss, nothing worthy of death. We can see visibly that journey to the cross, and we can see him all the way to the cross, being crucified, though he had done nothing wrong, and also understanding things spiritually. We know what was behind all of his life and that last week and this cross, that he was bearing all the sins of his people, that he was always suffering the wrath of God against our sins, and that he was doing so, fulfilling righteousness, that he might thereby share that righteousness with us and impute it to us. It was the will of his Father in heaven that he, his only begotten Son, should take on human flesh, bear our iniquity, and give himself to that condemnation, to death, and drink of that cup of God's wrath and hang upon that tree, taking the curse of God. And when we know Jesus' suffering, and when we understand Jesus' suffering, then we'll understand this malefactor who prayed a very simple, believing prayer. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And then we'll understand also the answer that Jesus gave him. Today, verily, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Let's consider this familiar text under the theme, the salvation of the hanging malefactor. And now, maybe that strikes your ears a bit strange because we know this one as the penitent malefactor. But in treating this as the salvation of the hanging malefactor, I merely aim to follow the text. This is the word that was used to describe both of the malefactors. And it also, in following that word in the text and understanding that he was hanging It brings us to see the greatness of salvation. It is a salvation all the way reaching and irresistibly saving from the curse of hanging on a tree. Let's consider the salvation of the hanging malefactor. First, his sudden repentance, then his simple request, and his Savior's promise. Children, do you know what a malefactor is? You've heard the word a few times now, a malefactor. A malefactor is something like 
the word malice. Do you know what malice is? Well, if you have malice towards something or you do something with malice, you do something evil with evil intentions. And so this malefactor, both of these malefactors were men who did evil things with evil intentions. They were wicked men. They didn't stumble into sin, but they committed gross sins, grievous sins. Matthew and Mark call them thieves. And these thieves, that tells us what kinds of malefactors they were. And that doesn't mean that all that they had done was stolen a few trinkets here and there. When that word thieves is used in Matthew and Mark, then... The idea is something far more serious. It's a term used for insurrection or rebellion against the government. It's a term that, and it is a crime that often includes murder or both, that insurrection and murder. These two malefactors, one on Jesus' right and one on his left, were, are grouped together. They are treated as a unit up until this this text in verse 39, and they had a lot in common. They both committed crimes worthy of execution. They both were tried and condemned by earthly judges, probably Pontius Pilate. They were both sentenced to death by crucifixion. It also seems that they were both Jews, and that's uh, a conclusion taken only from this one piece of evidence that this malefactor asks his fellow criminal Dost thou not fear God? Indicating that they were acquainted to such a degree that they would understand what a severe punishment they were enduring, not only by being put to death, but by hanging on the cross, regardless of whether they were Jews or not. What they were, are distinguished by, what separates the one malefactor and the other is God's eternal good pleasure. Choosing the one unto salvation, unto faith and repentance and communion with Christ and paradise in heaven, and leaving the other in his own sin, condemned and cursed as he hung upon the cross he deserved and moved speedily in that way to his own death and his place in hell. God's good pleasure makes the difference between the one malefactor and the other malefactor. And because of, on account of God's good pleasure and the outworking of that will of God to save, that distinction becomes visible later on in the repentance of the one and the hardness of heart of the other. We're going to focus mostly on this penitent malefactor, the one whom God loved and the one to whom the promise was given. But we have to keep in mind that there is another one and that will humble us. That will humble us who identify with this penitent malefactor and the promise that was given to him that we understand that this there is an alternative, and the alternative is what we deserve rather than grace. When these two malefactors are introduced, they're introduced early in, or a little bit earlier than our text. Verse 32, there were also two other malefactors led with him. They were led with him. So as he marched and Simon the Cyrene bore his cross after him, these two malefactors were in the vicinity. They were accompanying Jesus to the cross. And when we're introduced to these malefactors at that point, that means we can understand what they might have known about Jesus and what they might have heard about Jesus and what they might have heard from Jesus. So we can we don't have to speculate about what they knew. They were crucified, one on either side of Jesus. And from the fact that they converse with one another, and from the fact also that this one malefactor is acquainted with the claim of Jesus' kingship, it's possible, if even likely, that they were situated in such a way that they could see one another on the cross. So one on Jesus' right hand and one on his left hand, but at such an angle that they could see one another and that would fit with the Roman purpose in crucifixion that it was to be torture. 
And it would add to their torture to see from another man what they themselves were enduring and how painful it was. One on the right, one on the left. And these soldiers, as they went to the cross, they saw Jesus mocked by the soldiers for his claim to the kingship. They were witnesses to the claims of Jesus' royalty that were thrown up in the face of Jesus in scorn. They heard the taunts, If thou be the Son of God, if thou be the Christ, if thou be the Chosen of God, if thou be the King of the Jews. And in all those things, those were the claims of Jesus, also treated as the crimes of Jesus. And so the malefactors would have understood what Jesus had testified concerning Himself as well as what others had testified concerning Jesus. They heard the chief priests mocking the soldiers. They were using his words against him and they were using his works against him. He saved others himself he cannot save. And in that they learned the work of Jesus. Besides from his name, Jesus, Savior, they heard about his works. that he saved And through all this scorn and suffering and in learning and hearing all of this about Jesus, they also were in a position as they were led to the cross and hung on crosses with him to observe Jesus. The meekness with which he carried himself, how he answered not a word, but went as a sheep dumb as he's led to the slaughter. And when he did speak, the first words that are recorded for us are, Words of great meekness and mercy. Father, forgive them, these persecutors, these tormentors, these revilers and scorners. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And these two malefactors, both of them, We read in Matthew 27, verse 44, the thieves also, both, the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. They joined the mockers and echoed the taunts with malice. They reproached him. On the cross, under the curse, This man was hardened in his sin and hardened against Jesus Christ. He was hell-bound. From an earthly point of view, there was no doubt. And on his last day, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. On the cross, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. by grace that this man was brought to repentance. Repentance is a gift of God's grace to us. Repentance is also, according to the fruit of God's grace, the activity of man as he sorrows sincerely over the sins he has committed against the Most High Majesty of God. And then by faith turns, that's repentance too, a turning to Jesus Christ for forgiveness for pardon, and for the strength of grace to sin no more. You want to notice a few things about his, this turning, this repentance, and it begins with his sincere confession of his sin. He says after the other malefactor reproaches him, railed on him, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us, but the other, this one who was repentant, Answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost thou dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds. The malefactor was condemned, he acknowledged that. We are in a great condemnation, a condemnation that demands a cross, a painful, torturous death. And justly. Indeed, justly, there's no doubt we have committed these crimes. There's no doubt we deserve this punishment. We rece- what are we receiving? 
Well, whatever it is, as awful as it is, it's our due reward. In the original Greek, the word used is worthy. We've received what we're worthy of. We are worthy of the curse. But this man, this man has done nothing amiss. In his confession, we have the very beginning and really the very essence of repentance and acknowledging that these sins are ours, taking responsibility for those sins and humbling ourselves under the justice and the just punishment of God. Another element of his repentance, really, almost more faith than repentance, is that he has turned to a new perspective of Jesus Christ. It's a repentance in the sense that he had, whereas before he viewed Christ as one worthy of scorn, and now he has viewed Christ as having done nothing amiss and not worthy of being railed on. And there's a turning there. But on the other hand, that's what faith is. Faith is looking at Jesus Christ and understanding who He is and believing who He has said He is. The Christ, the Son of God, the King of the Jews. And even believing that He is righteous, having done nothing amiss. That's a very strong statement of righteousness. He doesn't just say He's innocent of capital offenses. He doesn't just say, He certainly doesn't deserve the cross. He says he's done nothing amiss. That's that's bearing witness to his sinlessness. Sinlessness before God's law. Sinlessness before Roman law. Sinlessness in terms of sins of omission and commission. He's fallen short in nothing. He's offended no one. We indeed are condemned and punished justly. But not this man. The implication of his word is he is not worthy of the cross. He's done nothing amiss. That's the perspective of true faith. And how can we explain this except we confess that God by his Holy Spirit has been at work mightily and quickly, rapidly bringing him to a true faith And how did he come to this true faith? The same way that anyone comes to true faith. Besides the Spirit kindling it in his heart, the Spirit used the Word. There's no faith apart from hearing the Word. There are a few manifestations of this Word that we can point to even in this text. For one thing, there's been all that he has witnessed in the claims about Jesus. And even though these were proclaiming Jesus' claims to being the Christ, the chosen of God, the King of the Jews, the Son of God, the Savior, even though that was all, all those things were spoken with contempt and with envy and with hatred, yet they made his name known. And God may have used that For another thing, if they were indeed situated in such a way that they could observe one another, Jesus had that placard above the cross, the superscription, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And for in that sign, we have a declaration of the gospel, a declaration of the word of God, a declaration of truth, despite the malice with which it was posted. Besides that, he knew the name of Jesus. He knew Jesus of Nazareth by that name, that personal name that he fulfilled. A Savior. And perhaps most importantly, he was in the very presence of the Word. Not only observing it, hearing it, but he was a witness to Jesus Christ, the Word. And he watched him as he carried himself with honor and dignity, with patience and meekness. How in the face of cruelty he prays for mercy. And he had come to the conviction in watching this man and watching him in light of his his claims and what is being said about him. He's done nothing amiss. In the claim that he is the Christ, he's done nothing amiss. In the claim that he's the King of the Jews, 
He's done nothing amiss in claiming that. And the claim that he's even the son of God, even in that, from what he had observed, there is nothing amiss in Jesus of Nazareth's claim that he is the son of God. In God's providence, this man came to know Jesus. And he believed in him. Another element of his repentance and his faith is that he fears God. That's implied in his rebuke of the one who evidently does not fear God. Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And that reveals when he testifies to his fear of God that he's not merely turning away from his former perspective because of outward considerations. He's turning in the light of a consideration of God and God's greatness and God's holiness and God's justice. And that too is a fruit of God's grace in his heart. The Lord God put fear in his heart. There's no fear of God apart from faith, and the other malefactor is proof. Dost thou not fear God? And the answer that we must assume is no. He didn't fear God. And no one who is an unbeliever truly fears God. And we can see this fear of God even connected to the Christ who is next to him. He had heard the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. And he rebuked his fellow malefactor for reviling the one who he believed to be the Son of God. Do you not fear God? You're reviling this man, the Son of God. Do you not fear him? In a remarkable way, the thief on the cross had come to know Jesus and believe in him. And this is his salvation. The turning of his heart, the opening of his eyes, the illuminating of his mind, the emboldening of his tongue to speak the truth, to speak it in love. You could even see that love in his words to the malefactor. Dost thou not fear God? Consider your own condemnation. Consider this punishment and consider the man who you are reviling. It was a sudden repentance. Then this now believing and penitent malefactor who was under the curse, hanging on the tree, prayed a simple prayer. He said unto Jesus in verse 42, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. This is a very striking prayer, first of all, because it shows his conviction of faith that Christ was the king. And that his claim to be the king of the Jews was a right claim, a good claim. And that he believed, in spite of all the suffering and pain, and in spite of the imminent death of, the, of Jesus Christ, the penitent malefactor was convicted that Christ would, at some point, enter into his kingdom. And when he entered into that kingdom, it would be his it's thy kingdom. There's no if in his prayer. Lord, if thou dost happen to escape this day, Lord, if it is possible, if there is some way in which you come to the throne, then just maybe remember me. No, there's none of that. When thou comest into thy kingdom, remember me. It seems, though, that from Jesus' response, emphasizing today, today thou shalt see me in paradise, that this malefactor did not have a full and complete understanding of Jesus' entrance into his kingdom. He didn't expect it to be today. 
Probably sometime afar off. Probably, if he was indeed raised a Jew, he was thinking of the day when the kingdom of Israel was going to be established, and maybe he had a proper conception of it, having seen the suffering Savior. But either way, it takes nothing away from that essential conviction that Christ was a worthy king, and that not even death would stand in the way of him coming to his throne. And in this request also, we see that the malefactor's faith was a personal faith and thereby a true faith. He addresses him as Lord. Lord, and how, how could he know, we wonder, how could he know what that really means that he addressed Jesus in such a way that says, Jesus, thou who dost own me, the one to whom I belong, the one who has authority over me, and not only as king, but in this personal relationship, Lord, remember me. He's bold in his faith to ask something of Jesus whom he had formerly cast reproach in his teeth. He knows he's unworthy of anything. He knows he's under this sovereign Lord, and yet he asks, remember me. And the idea of asking for remembrance is a remembrance for good. O Lord, remember me in Thy grace. Remember me when Thou dost come into Thy position of power and authority and ownership of all things in Thy kingdom. Put me in remembrance. To be remembered by the king is to be saved from death and hell. To be remembered by the king is to have the doors of the kingdom opened and to be summoned in. To be remembered by the king is to be blessed and to have a guarantee of blessing. Remember me. And this is a request that one can only make by faith because this man had already, as I read one man put it, he'd already voted for his own condemnation. I'm not worthy of anything good. I am worthy of this cross. I am worthy of dying today by the sword. I am worthy of hell Remember me. And that leads us to, to conclude that the only reason that he prayed this prayer, having seen what he thought about himself, he prayed this prayer knowing Christ, his righteousness. His authority, my Lord and thy, my King, knowing His name, knowing His divine nature, knowing His works and His mission to save. Remember me. And this is a petition that's uttered by many of God's people. This was the idea of Joseph's request to the butler in prison of Pharaoh when he he said, Think on me when it shall be well with thee. Think on me when it shall be well with thee. And show kindness, I pray thee. And make mention me unto me, of me unto Pharaoh and bring me out of this house. That's what the malefactor had in mind. Lord, think on me and show kindness. It was the prayer of Samson when he was about to die. Remember me as he prayed for strength to avenge the Philistines. And it was the prayer of Hannah in her affliction, remember me and show kindness. It was the prayer of Nehemiah for the sake of God's house and God's priests, remember me. And it was the prayer of Job in hope of a better day, remember me. And of Jeremiah in hope of the Lord's vengeance against his persecutors, remember me and it's our prayer and it ought to be our prayer. And it ought to be our prayer from the same point of view as we acknowledge before God, O oh God, O oh Lord, I am not worthy of anything good. 
I deserve the cross and I deserve hell. Nevertheless, my Lord and my God, who hangs for my sins, remember me. And again, we see the grace of God working in him the boldness of faith to pray this prayer so that he not only came to a new awareness of his sin and misery before God, but he was also opened, his eyes were opened to the grace of God in Jesus Christ and to the mercies that might be showed to him from the king, the suffering king. And here we pause and remember that there are two malefactors. One of them lived and died in proud denial of his sin and reviled the Savior who did nothing amiss. The other was favored by God and brought to deliverance from his wickedness and unbelief, led providentially to the Word made flesh, and humbly prayed this simple prayer that the Savior answered. The testimony of the penitent malefactor stands today as a powerful and compassionate rebuke to the whole world today as they continue in their sins, sins that we understand, that we're acquainted with, that we've committed. Do you not fear God? Have you not considered the judgment of God against your sins? Is it really necessary? Will you tempt God to humble you even more, to afflict you even more? Is it not enough to be condemned by the judges of the earth and hung on a tree and brought face to face with death? Is it not enough that your sins have brought these other dreadful consequences into your life? Now don't think about the world others. But think about how that word to all comes to us. Is the Lord humbling you? Afflicting you? And it's not always the case that afflictions are the consequence of sin. There are many cases where it's not. And yet there are some cases when it is a direct consequence. Do you not fear God? Repent. And brothers and sisters who may be wandering in sin and will refuse to turn from your sin, you may have been going on in that sin for a long time. You may have, it may have been your whole life. Maybe there's been a life of hypocrisy your whole life long. And you wrestle with it and wrestle with it, but you will not turn. You won't repent. You won't acknowledge that all the trouble in your life is a consequence of your sin. Well, not only do we must we take heed to the word and repent, but take heed to the encouragement of the gospel. It's not too late. May it please God to use all things, whether his heavy hand and certainly the revelation of Jesus and the preaching of the gospel to convict us of our sins and turn us and to kindle in us the humility and boldness of faith to pray, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom and let us thereby cast ourselves entirely at the mercy of our Savior. And the Savior's promise in the third place is verily I say unto thee, Verily, truly, let there be no doubt, it will certainly be, and I, Jesus the King, 
with all authority say to the hanging criminal, guilty sinner, cursed men. Those who reviled Jesus, murdered souls, rebelled against parents, I say to thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. It's a very rich word, one of the crosswords. If I had selected just verse 43, we could spend an hour just on this one verse. We're looking at a broader picture, so I'm going to be relatively brief. But in this one word of Jesus on the cross, we have a testimony to the fellowship of the everlasting covenant of grace and how that fellowship is not interrupted even by death. And we have in these words of Christ Himself the death blow to the lie of Rome concerning purgatory. If anyone was worthy of purgatory, it would be these crucified criminals converted on the last day of their lives. But no, today, paradise. And it's also the answer to the foolish notion of soul sleep, that there is no consciousness in the believer after death in the intermediate state, but they must wait for the resurrection of the body to be brought again together with the soul and then experience fellowship. No, there's conscious fellowship to be with Jesus today. And it's the answer to many curious questions about the death of the Savior Himself. Maybe just my curious questions. But where did He go? What happened to Jesus in, his, in the three days? Well, His body was in the grave. But where did Jesus go? What did Jesus experience while His body was in the grave? He was in paradise. In His soul, He was in paradise with the saints. And what a thing that must have been for all the saints of the old dispensation when now at the moment of Jesus' death, here comes the soul of their Savior to fellowship with them. And now Jesus is always in heaven according to His divine nature, but there was something new here with me. The Mediator. And then how shortly after, there must have been another cry from all the holy angels and all the glorified saints, a shout for joy and praise of sovereign grace as the soul of this murderous, rebellious malefactor went to heaven and joined them in communion with Jesus. The remembrance that Jesus promised was more than this malefactor could have ever dreamed of. More than he would ever have dared to ask. He didn't even dare to specify. Just remember me. Remember me. And he promised communion to be with Jesus. And he promised paradise, heaven. And in using that term, he calls to mind the first paradise, the Garden of Eden, and what bliss that is, and maybe another indication that this man was acquainted with the first paradise and the five books of Moses, and how they might have, he might have contemplated heaven in terms of an exalted, glorified Garden of Eden with no more sin, having sin been, with sin having been conquered. And this communion in paradise would be enjoyed by them together that day. Without delay. So that this man did not need to fear 
the remainder of his suffering on the cross. He did not need to fear a day of judgment that he must endure with trembling. He did not need to fear a detour to purgatory or a hold up at the gates of heaven today. And Jesus could promise all of this because he had done nothing amiss. And yet he was condemned and hung, was counted as accursed, and indeed was cursed, and suffered under God's wrath, thereby taking this man's cross and transforming it. The cross of the penitent malefactor was emptied of its curse. And instead, it was turned into a tool to deliver this child of God through death and into paradise. Consider for yourself the saved malefactor's joy and peace and gratitude that must have flooded his heart at hearing Jesus' word. How it must have driven out for at least a moment, even a thought of the pain he endured. And then even as the pain returned, it, was, it could do nothing to his joy. He suffered the worst torture and torment you could imagine on, on the face of the earth. And yet, his joy couldn't be moved. And his love for Jesus was enlarged. And his heart was thrilled at a contemplation of what was awaiting him just beyond that moment of death. Consider for yourself how that dread terror of God's judgment which was before him. Dost thou not fear God, he said. He was fearing God. And how it evaporates into this new fear of longing and awe and reverence. And how his soul must have sung at the lifting of the burden of his own sins. He didn't need to pay for them anymore. And how his heart and his flesh began to long and ache for that moment of death. Death was transformed for him. The sting, he knew it was gone. And this history for us is recorded so that we might consider for ourselves how we have been saved from the lowest hell. Are you familiar with those feelings? Does it excite you? Does it excite me like it ought to? To hear about the cross of Jesus Christ. This history is also recorded for us as a testimony to the power of the grace of Jesus Christ and the perfection of His cross for accomplishing our salvation. And we see so many elements of sovereign grace here in this passage, in this history. We see the particularity of grace, how these two malefactors were so similar. One was chosen. One was brought to repentance. One was promised paradise today and the other was not. And we see a testimony to that unchangeable counsel of God, election and reprobation, the fountain of this grace. And that the fountain of God's grace streams forth according to God's determination and never wavers from it. From eternity, this malefactor was chosen unto repentance and faith and salvation. And that will of God was going to be accomplished. And we can be encouraged as we consider that grace has as its source God's own good pleasure, we can be encouraged as we contemplate our loved ones who are wandering in sin, our family members who have forsaken the faith, or the neighbors who are wickedly living and whom we have admonished and our word has fallen on deaf ears as we pray for them and as we continue to witness to them and as we fight against every notion of pride that says that these men, these women, that child cannot be saved. The malefactor was saved on his last day from the curse. And it's a testimony to the nature of God's grace that it is irresistible 
because we have seen that this was a man who was hardened in his sin. He went all the way to the cross, relishing the sins that he had committed and reviling the one who had done nothing amiss. And yet the grace of God is effectual in humbling him and opening and softening his heart, bringing him to a true faith. And it's a wonderful example for us of the full scope of salvation. What is salvation? Somebody asked you that, what would you say? What is salvation? Salvation is the work of God through Jesus Christ and His cross and by the operation of the Holy Spirit to deliver dead, guilty sinners from the lowest hell and to bring them in the way of repentance and by a true faith to the highest heights of heaven to fellowship with Jesus in paradise. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved congregation, and put your trust not in yourselves. Put your trust in the grace of Jesus Christ. If there's any ever an example of a passage that rules out that salvation could ever be by works, is it not the malefactor with his hands and feet nailed to the cross? It can't be by works. Salvation is of mere grace. Give thanks to God for it. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for grace. And we thank Thee for the foundation of that grace and the righteousness of Jesus Christ and for His compassion to poor sinners such as us who have nothing to offer and have no strength, who are utterly dead and depraved. And we thank Thee that His grace is sufficient for us. A mighty power to bring us to great glory. Amen.